I'm Zach. Nice to be here. Uh, this is actually the podcast that Dr. Tim was mentioning. It's called Evolution 101. Um, it's available at iTunes. If you go to the podcast director there, they have it. Um, also, my website, drzach.net, and you can also find it several different podcast directories. And there's the uh, logo for that. So today I wanted to, uh, since the sort of the, the topic at large is changes, uh, so speciation, how do species change from one to another, and, and how do we even tell what uh, one species is versus another one? And this is actually um, quite a vexing question for evolution, and um, sort of like in a philosophical way, and I'm going to be covering this actually later this week at the Dallas Philosophers Forum. Now, so I wanted to talk about what is a species, because you sort of, you know, a cat is a cat, a dog is a dog. It seems like something that's just sort of intuitive, but it actually is, is really not quite that. Um, Darwin's thesis on evolutionary theory, of course, uh, was titled On the Origin of Species, and so sort of, you know, you, you presume a clear understanding of what this concept is, this, this term species that we talk about. But like most aspects of science, most things that we deal with, it is actually is a lot more complex than that. Um, so how do we distinguish one species from another? You know, I mean, you just you look at a cat and you look at a dog and you say, okay, these are obviously different species. But you know, how do you really you know rationally go about this process? And it actually is quite difficult, and um, there's not quite a clear answer yet. One good way to do it is typology, and this is sort of the uh, the initial way that things were done. The next is morphometry, and I'll, I'll get into these in detail later. Um, there's also the concept of sexual isolation. Uh, and finally, we can look at phylogeny, how these organisms are related to each other. So typology, uh, like I said, is one of the earliest ways that um, species were distinguished, things were classified. If you go all the way back to Carl von Linné, uh, Linnaeus, you know, he invented this um, binomial taxonomy system. Um, and the way it worked is you would actually find um, a, a, the first novel individual of, of any group, something new, something that had not been seen before, and you would bring that into a laboratory or a museum or something like that, and that would be the prototype, or the type, and I put that in quotes because that's what they would call it, the type specimen. And then when you go out in the field and you find other organisms that are similar to that original type specimen, then you say, well, okay, well, this looks like this thing that we have in a drawer someplace, so it belongs to that same species. The problem with this is that this way of classifying things assumes that all members of a species are going to have all the same characteristics, and you can't actually take them and put them next to each other and compare them and say, well, this looks exactly like that, so they have to be related. Um, but that is not true. Uh, there's a wide uh, amount of variability among different species, and we know that you can find different organisms in, in a species that don't look anything like each other. Uh, this is an example. Uh, on the left, you see um, literally butterflies pinned down to a board in a drawer someplace, and this is the way it works. You can go to any museum, and they've got type specimens in drawers, just shelves and shelves and shelves of dead animals or plants. Uh, they've got books and books of plants that are sort of pressed down into the pages and bound down there, and they, those are the type specimens. And you literally do keep those in a drawer someplace and compare other organisms out in the field to what you have in your book back in the museum. So it's not really the optimal way to do things. 
The other way to look at things is by comparing morphometry. Morphometry means uh, measuring of different you know, physical characteristics. So the idea of this is that all members of a particular species will share certain physical characteristics. Of course, this seems intuitive also. Um, the difference of this is that it does not use a type specimen. You don't have, you know, whatever the first thing is that you find, bring it to the museum and compare everything else to that. You look at the entire population and you compare, you know, the physical features of each one of those. And the individuals are then grouped together by the way that they look. There's a problem with this, though. Genetic studies have shown that organisms can look very, very similar without actually being closely related. Uh, several good examples of this, for example, the, um, the flying fox, the large fruit bat. Um, their genetic studies suggest that it's actually probably a primate and not a bat, even though it looks just like a bat. Um, here's an ex uh, some more examples of this. On the left, you see um, crania of uh, various hominid species all put together and compared, and you can sort of you can pick out the species, you can divide them into different species based on the way their skulls look. On the right, you see examples of fish skin. You can classify different species based on the type of scales and the size of the scales that they have. Um, sexual isolation is something that you're probably a little bit more familiar with. Um, this is back in the 40s and 50s. Ernst Mayer, you know, the, the great evolutionary biologist, started talking about the definition of a species as something that you know, which cannot interbreed with something else that's different. Um, so the, the sort of the working definition for this classification is that all members of the species are able to interbreed. And what happens is you have some sort of a geographical or other barrier um, that separates members of the population and keeps them separate long enough so that they are able to change in some way that prevents them from interbreeding. And so then you have that sexual barrier which prevents them from sharing genes and they further speciate. Um, and so you get eventual uh, sexual incompatibility. The problem with this is that we know there are several different species that we know of that are actually able to hybridize. They are actually able to uh, have sex with each other and generate young. And uh, there are many species that do this that we know of. Uh, there's another problem. Uh, not all species are sexual. There's a vast number of asexual organisms. Uh, you know, bacteria, for example, the most populous organism on this planet, completely asexual. So how do you classify them if they're not actually, you know, exchanging genes with each other? And uh, here's some examples. On the left, you see the liger, uh, Napoleon Dynamite's favorite animal. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you see how, and this is actually kind of interesting as an aside, you see how massive this creature is. This is a full-grown man. It's standing next to it. It actually turns out that there is, in, in the lion side of its DNA, there is actually uh, a growth factor that's expressed that causes growth. And on the tiger's Y chromosome, uh, or in the lion's Y chromosome, there's a repressor that keeps that from getting too big. But the tigers do not have that. So when the lion crosses with the tiger, there's no check for that growth. And these animals get huge, as big as horses. It's amazing. Um, on the right side, you see uh, some whiptail lizards. And these are actually asexual creatures. These are all female. They reproduced by what's known as parthenogenesis, and there's a number of lizard species that do that. Actually, we just found out a few weeks ago um, that the, uh, the big Komodo dragons actually do the same thing. And so they're, they're, you don't need a male to actually reproduce. They can just give birth. It's a miracle. Um, <laughs> um, 
So the other way to do it, and we're, we're sort of leaning more and more towards this uh, in, in modern science, is phylogeny, by really um, saying that, well, all members of a species have to have a common ancestor, and so we can look at their DNA and, and find out if that actually is the case. And the, line, the lineage actually has to be continuous for that to be true. This is most useful for establishing relationships between different species. You can compare one species to another by the DNA, by the molecular evidence, and, and see how closely related they are to each other. Of course, there's a problem with this, too, is all extant species, all species that are living now, all have a common ancestor. So where do you draw the line? It's kind of tricky. And this is an example of uh, cladistic organization of uh, some species, and this is, this is how these phylogenies are derived, and what they're useful. Now, there's a further problem, uh, which I find incredibly interesting. And you're, you can actually find a little bit more of this in detail in uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The Ancestor's Tale, and he, in the section called the, the Salamander's Tale. It talks about ring species. And ring species are a very interesting phenomenon that, that really show the, the mechanism of speciation and sort of blur the lines of you know, how we actually categorize species. Let's say I've got a line there, it's um, five different colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue. And if you look at any two of those right next to each other, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty close, they're related. The red and the, the orange, you can see those being, you know, the same, the orange and, the, and so forth. And uh, so imagine that there is a, a species or a population of organisms that have a similar progression, where the species on the far side is you know distinct, and then the next one is a little bit different but close enough, and then the next one's a little bit different but close enough, all the way down. Well, well, let's say that instead of being spread out in a line, let's say they're they're circled around something like some some geographical uh, structure, let's say, and they come around. Well, you can see that the blue is just about to overlap with the red. And in, in fact, when that happens, you can get those species uh, which are in a, a common progression from one point to the next. All of a sudden, the, the tail is back of the head. And it's quite possible that the differences that have accrued as this, these species have spread out along this line are significant enough that the first species and the last species cannot actually interbreed. And we call this a ring species. And there are several examples, and I'll, I'll give you a few of them now. The first one, one of the, one of the classic examples, is the herring gull, uh, Laris argentatus. Um, it's basically, you know, a seagull. And uh, there's a model proposed by Ernst Mayer that the, uh, the seagulls had actually uh, arisen like near the Baltic Sea and gone north, where they hit the Arctic Circle and they spread around the Arctic Circle in both directions. And the, um, here's the uh, representation of the Earth looking down at the North Pole. And you can see the Arctic Circle is basically, you know, around this, around this way. And um, it starts off with Huygens' goal here, and the progression would have been in both directions, and you ended up with the lesser blackback goal over here in the um, Norwegian Peninsula. And the progression goes along the other way, along Siberia, into Alaska and across North America, you see these, these different species that exist today. And there's a progression on both directions, and they end up back here uh, in England, where you have the herring gull and the lesser blackback gull are really close enough that they share the same territory, but they do not interbreed. And so what you have is you can hybridize blackback gulls between the Siberian lesser and the lesser, 
you can hybridize anything in between except when you get to the end and the herring gull and the black back gull cannot interbreed. So we, can, we consider that a ring species. There has been some research uh, recently actually um, out of Germany and, and the Netherlands to suggest um, they looked at actually the genetic evidence and they were saying that the, the herring gull and the American herring gull are actually not distinct enough um, genetically and so they don't really classify it as a ring species yet because the head and the tail have not met, although they did admit that the blackback gull is migrating over into North America, so within the next five years it is going to be anyway. And so I'm just going to show you some examples of these so you can actually see what they look like. And this is the blackback gull. You can see the mantle, uh, the feathers on its back are very, very dark. And I'm going to progress through all the way around it and watch those feathers and see how light they get. And then finally we're here at the herring gull um, back in England. And you can see that the feathers here really are a light silvery color. In addition, they, they actually get bigger as you go around uh, the Arctic Circle. Um, and here's, uh, here's all of them on the same slide. You can see that progression. And this is actually a herring gull and a blackback gull standing right next to each other. <laughs> you know, so they, they, are, they are very, very different, just sort of morphologically. Um, and almost every criterion that we have for a different species uh, they are different. They don't interbreed, they look different, they, they do different things. Um, but if you go around the circle, you find hybridization all the way around. So it's kind of, it's kind of a problem. There's another uh, really good example, the green warbler, uh, which is found in uh, central and northern Eurasia, uh, Phyloscopus trochiloides. Uh, the ancestral species was uh, in the northern regions of Nepal, and it's still there. There's a, still a... a uh, species there, and it expanded northwest and northeast around the Himalayan Plateau. And this is a picture of the Himalayan Plateau. You see India down there at the bottom and all these mountains, that's the Himalayas. And um, what happened was you have the greenish warbler that started off in Nepal and it sort of migrated both directions because it couldn't actually go into the mountains, so it just went around. And as it did that, this, you know, speciation occurred, and, and you get the dull green warbler over in the east, the bright green warbler in the west, and then the green and the two-barred up in central Russia. And this is actually, uh, you know, this shows the progression of these species. This is the uh, original, the, the green warbler, greenish warbler. And this goes around the east side, and then that's the west side, and you can see them all see that progression. There are actually, there's not that much morphological change among these species. The way, it's kind of interesting, the way that they were determined that they are actually different species and they don't interbreed is because their song is different. Each species is sort of defined by its song and that's how they attract mates. So if you have a different song, you can't attract, this, this bird can't attract a, a bird from that as a mate because it has a different song. So that's kind of interesting. And uh, finally, the, the Monterey uh, in satin, I believe that's how it's pronounced. I don't know if there are any herpetologists in the room, uh, salamander uh, specialists, but uh, I believe it's in satin. Um, it's in Eschultzi, I believe. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a subspecies, a number of subspecies of salamanders that are found in California around the Simi Valley. And of course, here's California again, and you see the, uh, the, the coastal range over to the west, and the Sierra Nevada over to the to the east, and in between those the Simi Valley, and these salamanders 
they like being up in the mountains, they like being up in the forests, and they don't like it in the valley. So they have populated all around this valley. And then what's really interesting is that you've started off with one sort of one subspecies here in the south on the coast, and they sort of migrated up north, and then double back around and come down from the other side of the valley. Um, there's also a hypothesis that the original species started up in the north and migrated down on both sides, but uh, they're not quite sure. Uh, the genetic evidence isn't that clear. So you start off with Eschultzi and you end up with Cloudberry, and uh, these are what they look like. This is Eschultzi. It's a you know small, dark brown, you know salamander. The next one is Xanthoptica, and you can it's got the yellow eyes. That's uh, what makes it a little bit distinct from the uh, Eschultzi. And um, then this one is Picta, I believe and the Oregonensis, and you start to see, it's hard to see with this, but you start to see some blotches in the skin, which um, are picked up a little bit uh, in the next species, and become a little bit even more pronounced as you come back down the range. And then finally, Cloudberry, it's very, very distinct. And here you can see them all uh, in a big circle. And again, this is a ring species. Any two um, adjacent species can hybridize. But these last two, the Schultze and the Cloudberry, cannot. And so this is a, really a classic example of a ring species. So ring species are a very good illustration of speciation in action. This is, it really does seem to be, because if you, if you look at the salamanders, if, if something was to happen, and let's say there was a drought in North California, and you killed off all the salamanders there, then you really would have two separate species. There'd be no question, because you've cut off that middle part of the ring. So this may be one mechanism by which speciation actually occurs. And this, this may have happened, uh, Richard Dawkins uh, mentions that this may have happened for human evolution. There may have been a ring species around the Rift Valley in Africa um, that separated uh, human ancestors from chimpanzee ancestors. It's quite possible. Um, but the problem is that these ring species provide lots of disagreement and frustration uh, for those who wish to categorize them. It's, it's really tricky. Are they different species? The salamanders are considered to be subspecies. The herrings are considered to be separate species. But what's the difference? So this brings the problem of species, again, into glaring relief. You know, we're, we're sort of back where we started. And why is this a problem? I mean, why should this be so tricky? Well, Richard Dawkins talks about what he calls the tyranny of the discontinuous mind. And this is basically a, a manner of thinking that's derived from Platonic philosophy. And it, it's something that really does sort of come naturally to us. And we have to sort of train our minds not to think like this. Um, basically, essentialism is, is what we're talking about. It's derived from Platonism and idealism. And the idea is that there are actual things, like this, this stand or this microphone, are imperfect versions of some ideal archetype. Like there is some ideal microphone somewhere out in the ether that this is just you know a poor reflection of in some way. And so that's that's the uh, the mindset that gets us into thinking about species the way that we do as discontinuous units that things can actually be separated. Um, the idea that each species derives its particular nature from some immaterial essence or speciesness, that a dog is a dog because it derives its dogness from some ideal dog archetype. And so, what is the solution? Well, there really is none. Gotcha. You know, well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's not a scientific solution, at any rate. 
I know, it's too bad. As is usually the case in science, a combination of approaches is the best solution we can manage. All the things that I talked about, typology, morphology, sexual isolationism, and phylogeny, those are really the best ways. And any, you know, we can distinguish a cat from a dog by any of those means. We can show that they're morphologically different, phylogenetically different, all those things. And, you know, for things like ring species, well, we just sort of have to realize that, look, it's really not as discontinuous as we might think. And even though we want to characterize things and give things different names, you know, it doesn't really, the, the species themselves don't really care. The concept of species really is arbitrary. It's sort of like a cosmic context. The universe doesn't care how we classify things. It's, it's only in a human context that it's meaningful. And, you know, that, that really is the case for most things in science. When we're, when we're looking at things, um, you know, you can say, well, you're just reducing things down to their, their bears, you know, but, and you're making things meaningless. Well, you know, yeah, in a cosmic sense, you are making things sort of meaningless, but that just means that we have to use, you know, our initiative to give things meaning, uh, just like with the problem of species. So, that's all I have.